Blog Talk Radio. joining us again today. Those of you who listen regularly know we're on every Wednesday at this time, 6 p.m. on Eastern Daylight Time at this point. And our website where we announce our weekly shows both on radio and television is www.abetterworld.tv. I guess these days people don't say www. anymore, do they? Well, could you say that I'm old-fashioned? I don't know. Abetterworld.tv. This past week, just to remind you, on Monday night, we had the spiritual teacher, Gangaji, on, the Advaita teacher, lovely, lovely woman. And uh, on Monday evening, uh, the other radio show on Progressive Radio Network, PRN, was... Uh, the re-airing of my interview with the director and producer of a film called Water Wars, Jim Burroughs and Suzanne Bauman. So if you haven't seen these, they are in archive at abetterworld.tv under Radio Archive. So please tune in and see what we're doing here at A Better World. We're doing that. We're trying to create a better world. We engage the sung and the unsung heroes of society to come and speak with me, dialogue with me about these very important uh, topics and issues and subjects and themes that are really designed to help affect a paradigm shift, to move us from the reptilian type of rather primitive thinking that obviously dominates the thinking of our society and our planet at large, and yet there are some luminous figures in the midst, in our midst, that are leading the way, pioneering with their own creativity, their own imagination, their own thinking, their own commitment to creating a better world and tapping into traditions that have indeed been with us for a long time, many thousands of years in some cases, if you think about the... uh, the dream life of the Australian Aborigines and their contribution to our planet that goes back perhaps, they say, 40,000 years. So it wasn't yesterday that our society was born. We really are carrying forward a legacy of much wisdom, of much intelligence. Uh, It unfortunately gets eclipsed all too often by the... uh, 
the economic and political powers that be that uh, sort of invade and infiltrate ordinary, good, quality thinking and being. But still in all, with that aside, there are pioneers, as I mentioned, and our guest tonight, Dr. Raymond Moody, is one of them, who, despite any resistance from the external world and society and professionals and colleagues and the like, has been forging a path, cutting it with his own mental machete, if you will, uh, about this whole notion of life after life, the continuation of the life of an intelligence, of a soul, far beyond the life of the physical body. So that will be our theme today as we continue on from where we were last week with David Hinshaw, who is a close colleague of Dr. Moody's, with whom I was speaking about these kinds of things. And, you know, if you're going to create a better world, if you're going to engage the whole gestalt, the true holistic picture of the nature of life, the universe, the cosmos, and reality. And by the way, for those of you who do not realize, the word cosmos is actually the word from ancient Greek for world. It's been associated with what we refer to as the cosmic and cosmology, i.e. out there, but it really means world. And so it could be referring to any number of, you could say, different scales of world our inner world, our outer world, our extra outer world that we usually think of and associate with the cosmos. But it's truly much more overlapping and, no pun intended, interdimensional at that. So a little bit first about our guest today, Dr. Raymond Moody. Uh, In 1975, Dr. Moody's best-selling book, Life After Life, focused public attention on the near-death experience like never before. And it was Moody who actually coined the term, the phrase, near-death experience. Dr. Moody is also the author of The Light Beyond, Reunions, Life After Loss, Coming Back, Reflections, and most recently, Glimpses of Eternity. He has been internationally acclaimed for his extraordinary work, His work goes even beyond the writing and the teaching. He has just been a real gift to the consciousness of people who are willing to look behind the curtain, so to speak, and see what else might be there. He has had clinical um, acknowledgement, I should say confirmation, of a lot of the work he has done, as well as corroboration through anecdotes and people's deep intuitive experience, as well as direct conscious experience of having a life after what we refer to as death. And uh, that's why his work is really so illuminating and useful, because it opens up the, the boundaries and the parameters of what we usually think of and represent to ourselves as the boundaries around 
life and this thing we refer to as death. So, Dr. Moody, are you with us? Yes, sir. How are you? I'm well, thanks. I'm so glad to welcome you to A Better World. It's really a pleasure and honor. I've been a a fan of yours for many years and the work that you've been doing. I feel it's been, as you could tell from my introduction, really a seminal piece of work in helping to expand the thinking about what life is and what is what we refer to as its end. Excuse um, me? And thank you so much for that. That's really nice of yes. you to say. And I got to say too, though, that um, I really, um, to me, it all goes back to the Greeks. I, you know, they were into this a long time ago, and that's how I got awake to it as a philosophy. In major what way did the, that did that incite you? Excite you? Well, you know, I had never been a religious person. I uh, and still am not really. I mean, I'm. Um, formal religion and so on is, and I, I ne- didn't come from a family that was focused on religion or anything. But uh, I had been interested in astronomy actually when I was a kid, and uh, mm-hmm. but I got interested in philosophy in high school. I went to college just intending to go on and get a PhD in astronomy, but um, oh. quickly got. Uh, led away into philosophy in my first few days, actually, of my college and reading Plato's Republic, which is which culminates in what we now call a near-death experience of a mm-hmm. warrior named Ur who was believed dead on the battlefield but revived during his funeral to tell this story. Um, and I had known that these a lot of these early Greek philosophers collected cases of what they called um, the revenants or whatever. So in terms of that, I, you know, it is a it was a, one of the earliest activities of the philosophers was to to talk to people you know who'd almost died. And so in that sense, I was just continuing along in an old tradition. And um, yes. what it, it, the difference now see is that when Back in the late 60s and early 70s when I was first doing this research, by that time, due to the advent of CPR, there were so many more people who were brought back from a state that formally was called death that yes. um, you know, that life after life contained its own verification and, and really because anybody who questioned it would quickly find cases of it just by asking among their own friends and relatives, actually. So, yes. Yeah. So I don't think of myself. You as know, much, in other words, you know. almost every family has its own yes. stories yes. regarding life yep. after life experiences. Yeah, Sometimes and especially the, you know, the ghost the, realm or something of that sort. Yeah. yeah once the CPR thing set in, then you know these. Experiences just became very common, but but I think the virtue that I brought to that book was, um, yes. first of all, not being a parapsychologist. I mean, parapsychologists are very nice people, but um, to say that in you know in 2014 that this question of an afterlife could be a scientific question is premature. Yes. It's it's a, it's a rational question, and it's probably the most important question. 
but it's not in a format yet that can be tested by science. So, so I am not a parapsychologist, but um, um, so that was another virtue of the book. But you are a physician, which means that you have yes. been trained in scientific modality. Well, yes, yeah. And but how you know, do you, uh, you reconcile that training of yours, Doctor Moody, with? Mm-hmm. Uh, what the phenomena that you have in many ways uh, borne witness to? Well, you know, the near-death experiences were interesting to me from the background of philosophy. Then I met this Dr. Ritchie, this amazing man who had such an experience when I was 19 years old, I guess, or 20 years old in 1965. Mm -hmm. And um, so um, the, I was doing this work even before I went to medical school. I got a, like I said, got a PhD in philosophy first, and then after a few years of teaching philosophy, I went to medical school. And um, and yes, so there's a clinical interest in this too, in the sense that um, when people have this experience, it do, it does really bring about a profound transformation in their personality and to me as a psychiatrist that has been a very interesting feature of this because um sure i know and i'm sure you know how hard it is for people to change yeah and um yet you know i see people who have these near death experiences really do undergo at least according to their relatives and uh, people who knew them before, uh, profound transformations. How do you understand that? Well, my guess is... I mean, this might, has... this might be the biggest change agent. I mean, after all, I'm a psychotherapist, too. I, I yeah. see that people's personalities, behavioral and attitudinal habits are That's sort of like exactly a rubber band. What... They stretch, but they snap back into position. That's right. All together exactly. too often. Yeah, so you how know, do you it's like that. What my this? rule is, you know, I just kind of came to realize in the course of my psychiatry career that almost everybody is chasing something, right? Like yes. people chase. I chased knowledge. I had two, two medical, two um, doctoral degrees before I was thirty-one. Think of it. You know, what I mean, in terms of philosophy, a and one-way one? person, right? You know, unidimensional. You know, always with my nose buried in a book. What were your and two then, PhDs? So one was in chase. philosophy, Dr. Moody. Yeah. What was the second one? Uh, an MD degree, and then I then I did uh, okay. psychiatry training. And yeah. um, and you know, some people chase power or fame or money or whatever these things are. But um, it's mm-hmm. everybody says that when you see your whole life reviewed. They say that um, you undergo this experience in which, in an instant, it's they have to relate it as though it were a sequence. But they say it's not experienced as a sequence. <clears throat> that everything they've ever done is is around them in a sort of hologram instantly, and you see in this hologram every action you've ever done, and yet you see it uh, when you. You see it in in this experience. You are no longer watching through the eyes of you as the actor, 
but rather you are embedded in the consciousness of those with whom you have interacted. So mm-hmm. if you see yourself some, doing something mean, then you immediately and empathically feel the hurt that you brought about. Or if you see yourself doing something loving, then you feel the good feelings. So yes, it's um, that I think is probably the aspect of the near death experience that accounts for a lot of this transformation. And I immediately want to go on to say that people they also emphasize that it doesn't make you a saint. This wonderful Dr. George Ritchie, <laughs> the psychiatrist I mentioned in. Uh, Yes. Finest person I ever knew, and in 1976, he came to my house one day and he sang, uh, Raymond, this experience makes your humanity even more of a burden in a way. And if I may translate, George was yeah. very you know, kind-hearted. He would never have put it this way, but the way I would translate this, because I've heard it from lots of people, is that mm-hmm. – you know, that it's very hard to get through the average day without wanting to choke at least one person, right? (laughs) And that that doesn't change. So so people say that on the one hand, they've had this vision where they see that that's the object, but that really embedded here in this world is a very difficult thing to do. So, you know, it doesn't, um, it's not like instant nirvana, People say that, yes. if anything, it sort of makes them double down on the spiritual quest. Yes. Yes. Well, I'll tell you, I actually feel I have some explanation of that phenomenon of, you know, as we kind of playfully say, uh, being a, a, a saint and a sinner. Um, uh-huh. I really feel that I... I understand a little bit of that notion and i i explain it this way and i'm curious about what you may say because after all you're a physician and i'm not so you have access to an understanding of physiology that i i toy with but i would put it this way the a lower brain the survival reptilian brain Uh is very quick to either, you know, fight or flight, to either attack or or take off, you know. And um, it's so deeply rooted in one thing. It has one object, and that's survival. And at any given moment, that part of our brain is very much in action, even if we are having rather elevated thoughts. So to feel, you know, to feel a, let's say, a homicidal impulse is really a very, very human phenomenon. And as you said, everybody knows, you know, a day doesn't pass where you don't, you know, think as you well put it. Um, At the same time, thankfully, we have the higher levels of our brain that allow us to mediate and mitigate and modify the reptilian impulses with higher level functioning, which says, now, 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 it's one thing to feel it, it's another to do it, you know, and thereby we can actually come to a feeling of great love and sense of brotherhood, even with that very same person a moment before we wanted to strangle. That's so true. It is. It's fascinating. Uh, You know, Mitchell, I have 
really kind of become quite willing to sound psychotic at the age of 69. And um, <laughs> I really have reflected a lot. Tell me about it, Raven. Please, sit on it my couch. Me Tell me. <laughs> it took me a long time to come up. It, you know, it's people want to hear about the near-death experience, and I, you know, I can. I, and it's interesting, and I, but I just never, I couldn't make up my mind. I mean, you know, is this the the afterlife or is it something else? I never, I never thought it was the physiology of the brain, because mm-hmm. the the fact is, and it, it, people are so wedded to that kind of argument. It, it goes. Yes over their head when you try to take it outside of that framework of argument. Yes. But in reality, people who are not ill or injured, who are at the bedside of somebody else who dies, report all of those things, the seeing the spirit leave the body or saying that they themselves leave their own body and go part way toward the light with their mm. the spirit of their dying loved one, or they say they see the spirits of the dying person's deceased relatives Mm. coming to get them or the room filled with light and I've even had cases where the bystanders say they empathically co-live the dying life review of the person who passes Mm. away so it's not something that is caused entirely by the cutoff of the oxygen flow to the brain but right in other words consciousness what I really hear you saying, and I, I agree with you wholeheartedly, Raymond, that consciousness does not begin or end with the physical body or brain. I was explaining human behavior just now, not consciousness. <laughs> Only one oh, yes, part of I, it. I realize. And and the yeah. thing is that I um I gotta say, so as wacky as this sounds, yes. where I, I, what brought me around was about two years ago, roughly, um, her know of a case where a man had a near-death experience during his, uh, he had a, uh, it was in a car crash in which his wife was killed, and he almost Oh, is this the advertising executive in Salt Lake City? Yeah, yeah, so you know this. Oh, please, tell us this. Yeah, that he, um, so he, um, he, had his near-death experience, but he didn't tell the doctor. Anyway, when he subsequently related to the doctor this incident, the doctor acknowledged that he, that the doctor himself had experienced the the uh, the patient's wife being there in the uh, the operating room, and so while and, and, the you know, doctor was operating on this particular man. That's right. That's right. The and, doctor, the surgeon, experienced yeah. the presence of his now then dead wife. Yeah, okay. and uh, and so and uh, other cases like that. So I finally got to thinking. Well, you know, I realized at a certain point, it's I could feel myself trying to run away and rationalize and escape, rather yes. than just go on and to acknowledge that. To me, the most plausible thing to say here is that when people reach the dying process, it's like they're they they are conscious of some other state of existence 
that is mm-hmm. more inclusive than this one. And then when I kind of had to acknowledge that, it really it made me think of a lot of things in a whole different way. And then I got really serious about this question. I mean, you know, oh, my mm-hmm. God, there does seem to be an afterlife. And so then I got to thinking, well, then what is this all about, right? And Yes. I think I found where I have finally reached on this is again yes. it's in taking my license to sound psychotic at age sixty nine. Yes. I think if you look at the problem of what we call personal identity in philosophy, it, it Plato said, you know, what is the person? Well, it's the soul, an immaterial entity that inhabits the body, right? And then Mm -hmm. through the Middle Ages, then that began to sort of break up in the 16 and 1700s with Hobbes and and Locke and so on. And Locke saying, well, you know, that it's the memories, you know, that you're the personal identity is consists of your memories and but anyway the question is still open what is personal identity and so where i am with this to me it's like what El- Elie Wiesel said Elie Wiesel said god made man because he capital h e loves stories and I think there's a lot to that. You know, what is a human life but that person's story and the end? True enough. You know, that we live a kind of narrative existence. And um, and I, it, not long ago I heard a, a playwright say, um, or read a playwright who said, a play is just a life with the boring parts taken out. And 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 plays and and uh, Shakespeare said all the world's a stage and so on and and um, yeah. I got to thinking when I just finished up my residency in psychiatry I was kind of flirting with the idea of going into geriatric psychiatry and I had a period where I was mm-hmm. doing a lot of that not just people with Alzheimer's but but you know people who were cognitively sharp but who are just having a situational thing or something. And, yes. and then, of course, you know, because I lived to loved to listen, and elderly people usually like to tell their stories. Yeah, I just mm-hmm. listened to these amazing stories, and what I heard from a lot of cognitively swift old people was that the older they got, the more the impression developed, the uncanny impression developed. When they looked back on their life story, that it had been kind of like a play or a drama or a yes. script, and and I heard uh, Joseph Campbell say that same thing as and he when he was elderly, and and I just I know it's a common thing that older people say, and now I'm oh, beginning to see. I think there's a myself. lot of validity to it. Yeah, yeah. and you know, in some ways, somebody say, oh, Raymond, you're just, it's like a metaphor, right? You're taking the human institution of the stage, and you're projecting that out, and you're making that the whole of human life, and that would be a a fallacy, right? But, 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 I think there's a new, another way of looking at it. I think that it was the other way around. I think that what happened was that people like Aeschylus and Euripides and Sophocles and you know Aristophanes just looked at life and they saw that too. I mean, you know, they were thoughtful and reflective people. 
So they got to thinking, well, you know, let's clear a flat space out here and we'll act this out. And because I do think it's – I remember back in 1966, I was in Charlottesville, 67, and a Broadway musical came through town. I forget which one, a musical comedy. And since my wife and I always got great seats because we knew the guy who got the entertainment to UVA. So we were on the front row, and this musical – I don't even remember which musical comedy it was, but what I remember is that at the end – when the curtain call came, the actors and actresses came out, and the hero and heroine came out, and the people were yelling, screaming, and clapping, and all the supporting actors and actresses came out, and the clapping and the yelling. And then this 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 play had a really great villain, completely, you know, with high black hat and black cape. And when he came out for his curtain call, there was silence. And it was it seemed like it went on forever, but then, you know, people kinda of started waking up and oh, oh this is, and then they applauded, right? But mm-hmm. but I think it's kinda of like that. You know, I think that well, I know I'd one like to... thing is that people all over the world tell me about near death experiences is they say that when they went into that other domain of existence that this domain of existence doesn't seem nearly as serious as it seems from within the I'll tell framework. you, I would like to move the conversation to, yeah. first of all, acknowledging that this is a, a vastly subjective domain, as you said before. There is yes. no place currently for the light of science to really deconstruct the near-death experience. I am glad you're hearing you say that, Mitchell. It shows you've thought about this, because I just think people on both sides are crazy. You know, know, they just don't see the... The closest we get ultimately so far (laughs) is that there are what are referred to as neurological events, that there is a certain splash of biochemistry and endorphins and the like that create a perceptual shift sort of occurs with such, um, you know, sacred plant materials such as peyote or mescaline or LSD or the like. And they tend to shrug off that experience as well, which I don't think should be um, shrugged off at all. But I think there's some essence to the subjective experience that opens up interdimensional portals that objective experience doesn't have a handle on yet. But it will eventually, and that's okay. But what I'd like to really ask you, Raymond, is, first of all, let's let everybody know that we're uh, speaking this whole uh, interview with Dr. Raymond Moody, the internationally renowned, best-selling author of Life After Life, who has dedicated his professional life to the uncovering of the whole domain of near-death experiences, or I think even way better put, because I know some people are still trying to have what we could call a near-life experience, a (laughs) life-after-life experience. And it's really an exciting domain because it utterly smashes and smatters and shatters our ideas of what this thing called life and death are all about. And I 
thank you for helping play such a role in smashing that about. But I would like to come back, Raymond, to this just somewhat of the phenomenology of what has been reported to you over and over again over the past 30 to 40 years at this point of the stories we've heard over and again about the experience of a tunnel and then light at the end and an overwhelming sense oftentimes of either compassion or love uh, of a depth that we just don't experience much, if at all, in our ordinary day-to-day habituated human lives. Uh, Will you unpack some of what you've heard over and again for our audience? Yes, well, and I could go on to generalize because I do have medical colleagues on every continent except um, Antarctica who have investigated these things in their own uh, societies. And this does seem to be a universal human experience. For some reason, there's a certain kind of – some people just like to, I guess, hear the sound that these things are highly culturally determined. So – I yes. must be mix, missing something. I've been everywhere. Mm. <laughs> you know, Japan, yes. I hear the same things in Japan and China and, you know, in, in India that I hear in in the United States. But basically, what, what is people the story? Say, yes. that basically that at this point where their heart stops beating, they say that they change perspective very rapidly, that they suddenly uh, they begin to realize that they're looking on their own physical body, typically from a point of view above, and that from that perspective they um, are able to, they understand perfectly what the doctor and nurse and others present are saying, but that they don't hear a physical voice. They say that they become immediately aware of what the doctor or nurse or others are thinking. And that when they try to um, reply in turn that, that I'm sorry, my, my daughter is here. <laughs> sorry. Um, okay. Thank you, Carol Ann. Um, and that when they try to communicate in turn, that no one seems to be able to hear them or to see them. So it's kind of like a one-way mirror. Oh, yes. And um, Mm -hmm. that at this point, it sort of dawns on them as it would, that, oh, this must be something to do with what we call death. And at that point, people say, no matter how articulate or well-educated they may be, um, all over the world people say there are no words. They say that they enter into a a light, and they say far brighter than anything that we have ever experienced while we're alive, and yet that um, it doesn't hurt the eyes. It's comfortable. They go into this light and feel comfort and peace and joy, and they say that relatives or friends of theirs who have already died seem to be there to meet them, in spirit form, and they describe panoramic memory, as I mentioned, where they say everything you've ever done is displayed around you in a sort of panorama, which you live empathically in this phase of it, from the Mm -hmm. 
point of view of the other characters so that you you experience directly the feelings that you have brought about in others and um mm-hmm. so that coming back from this um you know people say they're profoundly transformed that they lose their fear of death and that um uh because they say that their experience convinces them that what we call death is just a transition to another reality and coming back saying that even though it's a very difficult task that they realize that you know the makeup of this universe is is uh, has a lot more to do with love i suppose than than with physical mm-hmm. things mhm mhm so in other words from i mean to the extent that we can look at this phenomenon objectively slash scientifically or at least empirically uh there's been this repeated story from all continents of the world colleagues of yours from everywhere but antarctica that have basically corroborated these same themes and um tenets of experience of a feeling of utter peace of light of love of comfort of safety of the panoramic view of their own uh personal lives and its history its narrative so to speak as you were talking beautifully about before and there is an overall sense of uh, ease that oftentimes we don't get to experience that much in physical life um and it's from a somewhat altered maybe even elevated perspective as though they were interdimensional and i keep getting the feeling and i've always had this feeling actually for a long time that it's not it's that it's a separate reality it's just an interdimensional reality and when we lose our in other words our physical body is it's delimits a certain kind of dimension what we refer to as three dimensions that doesn't mean the others aren't there all along. They're there all along. We just don't have access to them because our sensory apparatus keeps us pretty well locked into the material realm. But the lighter we become, the more refined our consciousness may become, other sensory apparatuses that we don't have names for necessarily begin to open uh, and when the physical body begins to ebb, those experiences of other dimensions begin to expand. So it's not you're, like they were there all the time. There. Yeah. What's that? You're a good Platonist, Mitchell. That you know, he said that he compared the situation we have in this life to a horse with blinders. Yes. And uh, that's kind of what you're saying, that the physical That's right, is... or even Plato's cave, for that matter. Right? Yes, exactly, cave, exactly. Yeah, and, um... exactly. I just wanted to check in with you, Raymond. You who are so uh, versed in this domain that my thinking is um, with some, uh, from your point of view, with some accuracy. Yes, yeah, I, um, that, uh, Allegory of the cave has, you know, that's been a sort of defining thing in my life, too. Yeah, the Republic and so on is where that is. Exactly. uh, 
Yeah, exactly, exactly. And plus it just sort of it goes along with my intuition. I even yeah. when I was a kid I realized very clearly that I was conscious. I mean you can't doubt that. But I realized very early in my life that anything beyond that is just inferential, right? I mean you yeah, we infer really things is. about the physical realm because of regularities in our conscious experience. But yes. that means that the primary thing is the consciousness, right? It's that's that's, right. The, that's the real deal. And that's right. Really, you know, to me it's it's I I vote with consciousness here. <laughs> you yeah, know, and I, I, and I understand too. also how people can get so I mean, science is wonderful, and physics, and all that. And I'm, True. you know, I'm, I'm also sure I understand how people can get into that, and it's their socialization and their education, and then it becomes, you know, like a belief system for them, and they, you know, they yes. get involved in it to the and they will the, limit their own consciousness, yeah, and absorb in it and through it that rather than real. expand it. And, and that's okay. Tell us if you would. Tell us, if you would, because you've done such interesting work with what you refer to as the psychomantium. And uh, tell us yes. what that is and how people have benefited from it. Okay. Well, first of all, get ready for something that sounds New Agey. But I am not New Agey. <laughs> I don't read all that kind of stuff. But, <laughs> but I'll give you a reference. Um, W.K.C. Guthrie. History of Ancient Greek Philosophy, Cambridge University Press. You can find this stuff in Volumes 1 and 2. And also another really wonderful book that has come out about it recently is Daniel Ogden, O-G-D-E-N. And it's uh, entitled Greek and Roman Necromancy. And it's by the Princeton University Press from, I think... Mm -hmm. 2006, and Ogden okay. is a professor of philosophy at Oxford, I think it is. Well, mm -hmm. basically, um, when you look at what the people who are the founders of Western thought the, the, are these ancient Greek philosophers, right? And that when you look at what the average person in ancient Greek Greece thought that one of these people did, you can find it, for example, in Aristophanes, the comic playwright. Um, in his play, The Birds, there's one scene where the birds are describing things they've seen as they've flown around in Greece, and they say, far away in Webfoot land and the swamp of dismal dread... There we saw foul Socrates come calling up the dead. And so what a a philosopher used to be thought of as this person who in, was involved in these ceremonies at places they called oracles of the dead. And there were five very well-known known ones. Um the most famous one is the one mentioned in Homer's Odyssey, but it's also mentioned in Herodotus and uh, and Aristophanes and so on. But the the what we get from the ancient writers is there were these places where you could go to 
go through a procedure during which you would see, seem to see and converse with the spirit of a dead relative or friend. And even though this is exquisitely documented in Plutarch and and I mean in Strabo the geographer and Lucian of Samosata and Pausanias the travel writer, we could go on and on and on. Yes. It was for a long time assumed that this couldn't be, so these people must have been misunderstanding or something, because there couldn't yes. be such a place. Well, yes. in fact, there were these oracles of the dead, and to make a long story short, they were very influential in the formation of Western thought, and that was my interest in them. And then in 1985, I think it was, I saw in a classics journal an article about the, ex- the rediscovery and the excavation of the most famous of the oracles of the dead, the one that is uh, in, in uh, Herodotus and, and Homer. And based on what they found there in that excavation, I was able to reconstruct the evocation process and duplicate it to the point where now it has been independently confirmed and replicated by many, many other people that I've taught how to do it. But basically Mm -hmm. it's this. They created these underground facilities that sensory deprivation, very dark down there, and they had various ways of creating what's called an optical clear depth. Apparently they did it in one of them with a big cauldron, a metal cauldron, which was probably highly polished, then filled with olive water and a layer of olive oil, and dark under dark circumstances under torchlight in this underground place and mm-hmm. um so basically i just set it up in 1990 i built a room uh just with a mirror and with darkened walls and uh equipment around to exclude light and i got a real comfortable mm-hmm. easy chair placed it about three feet in front of the um mirror and behind the chair a little a small light bulb with a switch where the person can turn on the light so that light comes up from behind them very diffusely in this little room and then i just prepared them i asked each person to choose one person that they who who had died that they wanted to see again then i took them invited them one at a time through at my place incidentally i should say that these were my psychology graduate students, a lot of them older people who had already been out counseling and were coming back mm-hmm. for further education. And, and also, yes. as word spread, it was my medical colleagues. So the mm-hmm. interest was not New Age or anything like that. It was basically yes. medical. I mean, we were just curious. psychologists, professionals. Yeah, yeah. and so basically... Uh, ask each one of them to choose a person, then they would come out to my place one one at a time. And then, um, as you can imagine, as a psychotherapist, it's just like sitting, you would do grief counseling, essentially, right? Like, yes. tell me about this person who died, and then you just mm-hmm. sort of get, you know, try to make yourself invisible, right? I mean, just yes. to get the person to talk. 
by asking very open-ended questions. And you do this about at least an hour. I mean, you know, it takes us a process. So when they have reminisced and they've brought up the person who, you know, they talk about, and then you you let them sit in this little room, and I tell them I'm going to leave them in there for an hour or an hour and a half and just to gaze into the mirror. And what happens under those circumstances, Mitchell, is that on the very first attempt, about half of them say that they actually do have some sort of experience, which they interpret to be a an encounter with a departed loved one. But it's a lot more dramatic than I had imagined. Mm-hmm. I had thought that anybody who saw it, they would say, they saw an image in the mirror of the person they set out to see or whatever, and that's what I was anticipating. But actually what people say is uh, they say that quite often they say that the apparition may appear in the mirror, but then it comes out into the room with them, full color, 3D, or other people, a la Lewis Carroll's Through the Looking Glass, say that their experience is that their consciousness is catapulted through the mirror and they come out on the other side into an alternate reality where Mm. they converse with the spirits of their departed loved ones. And uh, about 30% of them say that they hear the audible voice of the deceased. Um, Almost all the rest of them say that they didn't hear a voice, but it was like a heart-to-heart or mind-to-mind communion. To my utter astonishment, people report this as a real event. That is, I mean, yeah, that is just beyond surprising to me because I was thinking, you know, that they would say, well, you know, I saw this image. It looked like my grandma, but was it, you know, my figment or was it her? I don't know. That was the response I was expecting. But rather people say, yeah, I talked to my grandma. And And now, see, this makes clear what these early Greek philosophers were talking about. See, that's yes. the game in it to me. I just thought, oh, yes. wow. And then also, this is a very complicated story, but it's commonly sort of assumed that the man who was the founder of deduction de- deduction or deductive logic, Parmenides, was mm-hmm. apparently an evoker of the dead at one of these oracles of the dead. So there is, you know, there's truth in the... the what was said, that the early philosophers mm-hmm. apparently were involved with these uh, mm-hmm. evocation of the deceased process. Yes. Very. And that very. is sensational news, see, from some, the point of view of somebody like me. Now, yeah. the nice thing about it, too, beyond that, is that it's turned out to be a very good therapeutic modality. About uh, 18 years ago, Arthur Hastings, you may know, at the Institute of Transpersonal Psychology, they sent Mm -hmm. two people from the ITP out here, and I taught them how to do it, and they've taken it back to ITP, and they teach it to their uh, Ph.D. psychotherapy students as a modality for helping people with grief. And you can read about that, incidentally, in the Journal of Transpersonal Psychology from 2012, Arthur's done uh-huh. several articles on it, but that's his most recent one. And uh, That's so interesting. Yeah, it you is. You don't realize it, how much you are speaking to some of my own experience and interest. Raymond, in 1989 through the early 90s, 
I had a healing center in New York City called the Center for Creative Well-Being. And mm. in it, I had flotation tanks, mm-hmm. one wet, one dry. The flotation tank was developed by Dr. John Lilly, psychiatrist, psychoanalyst, yes. who was doing sensory deprivation work, as you probably know, for the U.S. Navy, in fact, at the time, when he discovered the or invented, I should really say, the flotation tank. And even though there are some facsimiles historically, like the cave experience that you're referring to, uh, a Hades-like kind of uh, thing, and we have Tibetan caves and the like all over China, etc. Um, using water, salt water in particular, as a medium in what we refer to as like a small dead sea, I don't think words are by mistake here, you know, you end up creating what the ancient Greeks had as the incubation context, which is very much... Yes, the thought that Parmenides probably was like an incubator. Yes. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And on one of his trips over to the other side... In ancient... I'm sorry? Yeah, and one of... Parmenides trips over to the other side, as he says in his writing about it. He, yes. he said he had been along that pathway that, to the other side many times before, but then this time he got abducted, in effect, by this goddess who sang him a song, which is the very yes. first written-out logical deduction. And she said to Parmenides, she said, Parmenides, when you go back to Earth, don't tell people to believe this because the goddess says so. Tell them to work it out in their own mind and see it for themselves. Oh. And that's, so you that's could the call beginning that, of logic. Oh, Raymond, you're going to enjoy this. Is this you weird or not? But it's also fact. I mean, you know, it's not a New Age thing. Oh, no, 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 no. Forget the New Age. Yeah. It's got nothing to do with what we're talking about. You could say Parmenides had the experience of deduction through seduction. Well, yes, 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 and that's the you know the Sorry about shaman that. song that is very built into the structure of shamanism that the shaman yes, will indeed. go to the other side and meet a spirit or a god or a goddess well, who sings sure. him a song to take back to the tribe for the benefit well, think of, of the, the tribe. sirens. If you go back, of course, to Homeric narrative, you've got the uh-huh. sirens, but. In ancient Greek mythology, you have the role of the psychopomp, which oh my God, yes, yeah, the psychopomp goes between right, goes between Hades to the other side, yeah, and exactly. And so, if we were to take what we understand from the Greeks, both on the literal and the mythological side, which have a very interesting relationship. Uh, we will see that these notions that seem very foreign to us today, which your life is so representing, uh, are really commonplace consensus-based realities for them. And just it got lost, it got lost, and you are very much helping to doom and resume that. It really is. Say that again? In, in 2014, we see logic way over on one side and yeah, the idea right. of life after death on the extreme opposite side. Whereas if that's you right. look at it historically, the yeah. logic arose from people's ideas about life after death. Yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty right. incredible. <laughs> that's right. And if you really take even a larger 
uh, historical picture and a, a cultural slash you know, anthropological one, you see that there really isn't a culture or a society or a civilization, uh, very few deserve that phrase but, or that term, but in the, on the planet, as far as we have recorded history or even oral history, that does not have a story, a mythology, or an enculturation around life after the so-called physical body. Not yes, one. That's right. That's right. I not just, one. Yeah. I think it's... At um, least in my studies, and I've, I'm fairly well studied, and I used to actually, some my, my major at Bard College <laughs> as an undergraduate was comparative mythology with a focus on Greek and Prometheus. But, you know, the the thing is that if you really go back to Joseph Campbell and you go back to the old stories of Gilgamesh and on and on and on, there are always representations of life after the physical, you know, corporal life line. So if anything, it looks like our modern-day perspective is actually the aberration. Well, it probably is an historical than this historical flow of things. I think you're right. But I also think it's going to come back in because, um, well, yeah. I think the baby boomer pressure, I mean, you know, there's tens of millions of people out there who are reaching that point where they are waking That's up right. to the importance of the question. And yeah, also exactly. because I, I think there's you. new ways of thinking about the afterlife question that don't uh, get into pseudoscience. Like I said, I'm not a parapsychologist. It's not a scientific question, but it is a rational question, and I think there are new ways of... I agree. That I, I appreciate the distinction. What's also interesting, however, I, I do want to make reference to uh, the conversation, because I've seen this uh, produced and directed and videotaped by uh, our last guest, David Hinshaw, David your Henshaw, good colleague yes. and friend, who your conversation with Dr. Eben Alexander, who uh, we will, you know, at some point have on the show as well, Conversations yeah. Beyond yeah. Proof of Heaven, of course, the name of his book. And in that conversation, you are dealing with a neurosurgeon who is so yeah. much a scientist who has so powerful a subjective experience that he objectifies because that's his nature and he does so in a way that really helps to clarify the field, so to speak, about really more data about what goes on in that yeah, particular Yeah, I, I really state. enjoyed doing that interview with Evan. And like you said, David uh, produced it and has really done a really great job of creating yeah. that uh, DVD. Yeah. What would you like to leave our listeners with, our audience with? What what last parting thoughts would you like them to be have circulating in their consciousness, Raymond? Well, you know that I think uh, it's on my mind to say that the most important question of life, I think, is the question of an afterlife. And that you needn't be embarrassed anymore about talking about this. I mean, there's ways of looking at it now that... Are, are 
completely within rational parameters. And I think we'll be opening up entirely new ways of investigating this question in the future. I think that's beautiful. And I think that there's also this dimension of the the healing aspect of allowing one the freedom to admit their inner experience, thoughts, feelings in this dimension. And I recall, actually, David mentioned to me earlier, and I want to bring this up to you, that that story you told earlier about the executive who was being operated on, and the surgeon was the one with the experience of his having passed wife. There was a nurse, apparently, in the operating room who also had some kind of interdimensional experience. Could you just... Enlighten yeah, us about that. it was. There were several people. Jeff's uh, brother saw the room open into another dimension, and the the nurse, as you say, uh, was said that she too experienced the presence of the wife there during the procedure. So, and and also within a context, Mitchell, that I've heard these things for years. I mean, I, one of my very wonderful and treasured medicine professors told me in 1972 or 73 about how when she resuscitated her own mother or tried to her mother passed away but that the 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 doctor herself my my professor said that when her mother died that she herself the doctor slipped out of her body and she saw her mother there in spirit form and said goodbye to her mother and you know saw relatives and friends of her mothers who had died were coming to greet her and so on. So, mm-hmm. you know, these things are just very difficult to put together in any way that's at all plausible without introducing the notion, I think, of some other plane of reality or some other more inclusive state of existence that we enter into upon death. Yes, yes. Well, that's a really uh, kind of lovely summation, and uh, I very, very much appreciate your dedication, Dr. Raymond Moody, over all of these decades at this point of sticking to some deep sense of knowing, despite the upstream nature of it all, and I think that you're beginning to see the fruits now that more and more people are beginning to recognize and acknowledge uh, the reality of life after life. And it's no longer simply a bizarre notion or a, a purely mystifying one that is dismissed, but one that is more and more increasingly taken seriously. And we have you to thank for a lot of for that because of your perseverance. So thank you so much, Mitchell. Sure. Please accept my gratitude. This has been very Let's pleasant. Let's give your so website. You so much. It's my pleasure. Yes. Your website is lifeafterlife.com as yes. well as uh you have another one uh raymondmoody.org. Raymond yes. We have a we have a course on there. It's uh 15 hours of lectures about the 
afterlife problem from a real rational point of view. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I just want to thank you again, Dr. Raymond Moody, for being our thank guest you. today That's on A Better great. World. Great. Good. I'm so glad. Talk to you soon and again. We'll, I, hope. I hope so. I look forward to it. God bless. You too. Bye-bye. Wow. Bye-bye now. What rich material. What rich material. It's rather awesome and daunting and expansive and the more we look the more we see of how limited how reduced how narrowed our view of this much larger circle cycle of life and as the point I made last week was that it's not life and death that are polar opposites, but perhaps it's birth and death, one coming in through a portal and one exiting the human body through yet another portal. And that behind them all is this ongoing wheel of life, a circle of life that is a notion underlying Virtually every culture, as I was saying before, one of the things that I personally find frustrating in today's fast-paced world, and probably people could said this thousands of years ago, but I would dare say it's a little faster these days than horse and buggy, um, is that we've lost historical and cultural perspective or, you know, anthropological perspective, meaning to say that we think that the prevailing thoughts of our current culture, our current society, are the uh, consummate thoughts from all time. And because of the religion of science, also known as scientism, that we are the acme of all thoughts from before. And I personally don't think that's true at all, and that we would become a good deal more expansive if we were to include and integrate many of the thoughts that permeated many of the ancient and currently indigenous cultures. Not to give up what we have here today with our own mathematics and physics and quantum physics and science, scientific breakthroughs and understanding, psychological, neuroscientific, uh, technological. All of this has got so much value. It's not one or the other, but it is a both and. And each can be modified by the other. And what that goes to say in respect to this conversation with Dr. Raymond Moody just now is that the point I made earlier, if we were to take a larger sweep, a broad sweep of cultures that we have identified over the past five to 10,000 years on planet Earth and inquire into their notion of life, birth, and quote-unquote death, we will see over and over again that there is life 
from the each cultural point of view after embodied life. We see this in the Tibetan culture. We see it in the ancient Chinese culture. We see it in the ancient Jewish culture. We see it in the original Christian culture, which is just a subset of the Jewish anyway. And they carried through the notion of of uh, reincarnation, which is just another way of saying all that we've been saying until, was it 325 AD at the Nicene Council, when they decided to strike that phrase, strike that scripture, excise it, and they had all sorts of reasons, mostly, no doubt, political and economic for doing so. Um, and so it's as though uh, Western culture has been um, somewhat whitewashed or brainwashed in respect to some very ancient indigenous ideas that are as old as biology itself. And when we look at things from that point of view, we can kind of relax around things and kind of let go into the ancient richness of our human traditions on planet Earth. You know? Like, be at ease with the fact that the Tibetans and the Chinese and the Indians and the Israelites and the Africans of every single nation, tribe, kinship, etc., the Australian Aborigines, everyone all over South America, the Andes, the Native Americans here on uh, Turtle Island all have uh, their respective perspective on the idea of uh, an intelligence, a soul uh, going beyond the embodiment of a physical body uh, and carrying on, the Atman, there are many different words for it, uh, the ancient Egyptians, um, uh, what was that word? Oh, it's escaping me, so sorry. But Wherever you look, however you parse it, you will see that it's only in the last century or two that we sort of excised our consciousness, uh, excised these notions from our consciousness and our tradition in thinking. And now it looks weird as we seek to revive it. But Dr. Moody, now Dr. Alexander, many others... uh, Near Eastern scholar I had on the TV show, uh, Dr. Julia Asante, uh, Annie Kagan, the chiropractor who wrote the book with her deceased brother, The Afterlife of Billy Fingers, a book I highly recommend to people. The work, as I mentioned, of course, Dr. Moody, Life After Life, Glimpses of Eternity. You'll see that this ain't far-fetched and if we apply it in a very practical way to our daily lives we see that it expands the conversation far beyond this mortal coil this mortal so-called mortal life and our actions make a difference perhaps through eternity because as uh, Dr. Moody was saying there is this sense of a visitation of uh, our lives looking like a movie or a play on a stage. 
and we see our own actions and our reactions and our attitudes as they have been with us through our own storyline for all of these decades of our lives. And we look at it uh, from a different perspective and we think, gee, I wonder if I could have been more loving. I wonder if I could have been more compassionate. Rarely will we say, I I only wish I could have been more mean-spirited or more aggressive. You know, I just don't think that's it, you know. I wish I were more violent. No, 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 no. But the gentle, the yin, the heartfelt, the soul-wise, that's the direction we need to go in and I had, for those of you who listen with any regularity, uh, Dr. Michael Cotton on some, about, I'd say, six, seven weeks ago. You can find it at betterworld.tv. Just put his name into the search engine. And I did it on something called Higher Brain Living, which I'm about to get trained in, interestingly. And I really cottoned to it, you could say. I really like it because it it reflects a conversation that I've been having with myself and with my clients and students for a long, long time, which is developing our higher-level brain functions of really exploring uh, human potential, a phrase that uh, the lovely Dr. Gene Houston uh, originated, as far as I know, oh, back in the 60s. Uh, this notion of human potential framed the way she did is so exquisite and so important. And I think we need to own this and recognize that there's an interdimensionality and a multidimensionality to the farther reaches of our nervous system, which is a bunch of tentacles like antennae reaching out into the world uh, and into the inner world. It goes both ways. That's really interesting. Into the microcosmic and the macrocosmic, both. Our sensitivity, our sense of refinement, our realm, our possibility, our telepathic potential um, of entering an empathic state with each other beyond what is the ordinary. Of course, I do that when I work with my clients and do therapeutic theater in uh, group settings and the like. Anyhow, these are the kinds of important uh, thoughts that we can have that literally expand our brain's activity. And if you have friends or family that are elderly who may be fearing death, which is what our society largely uh, teaches, whether deliberate or by unconscious implication, uh, this kind of conversation can really help to alleviate the fear, to modify, ameliorate, because uh, fear is the opposite of love, as they say. And if we dwell more on the love and if we dwell more on the notion of longevity, not just of the physical body, but of our soul's body, fear of death just sort of like takes the air out of the balloon. 
you know, it was Dr. Carl Jung who said that suicide was sort of like cheating. You know, you got to look behind the curtain before it was really your natural time. (laughs) And I think there's a lot of truth and wisdom to that. And certainly we need to live our lives as fully and robustly as possible and give back to our world, our society, our heritage, our ancestry, as richly, as lovingly as we can. And if it happens, no, I should say when it happens, we inch toward that moment when our body is disintegrating. I don't use the word dying, by the way, but disintegrating ash to ash, uh, the way we're actually taught it does, that energy does not disappear. It only transmutes. It only changes form. So our physical body, uh, which is temporarily assembled as it is with organs and bones and sinews and tendons and a brain and all of that, begins at a certain point, we've all begun to notice, uh, begins to disintegrate, only to be reintegrated into dirt, soil, mud, fertilizer, to give rise to another form of life. But that more refined aspect of us does, let's just say, continue on interdimensionally to show up in, guess what, some other form because of the play between the formal and the informal worlds, or the form and non-form. Interesting, huh? So if we allow ourselves to dwell on this, it will give a certain, you could say, longevity, a certain circularity, and a certain meaning to our lives, because it survives. Our lives survive the body. And that is a lot of the work that Dr. Raymond Moody has been uh, helping us all understand. And I just wanted to share with you a few of my own thoughts because I've given this a tremendous amount of thought for the longest time, and I still do say that death is one of my favorite subjects. People look at me cross-eyed. It's very funny when Raymond Moody said, you know, at the risk of sounding psychotic at my dear age of 69, well, I don't worry. I have people calling me all sorts of things. Not a problem. I am willing to stand by my own, what I feel are both rational and logical thinking, and my own imaginative thinking, and my own historical thinking. And when I do all of that, in the way that I do. The world makes a world of sense. It really does. And I enjoy people who decide to counter it because I feel that with a little bit of luck and a little bit of logic and a little bit of history behind us buttressing, the points can really be made that we do have a life after life. The life actually doesn't ever end. It only changes form. And the implications of this are powerful and potent, and I think we all deserve to dwell in that space of the contemplative 
relative to this. And if you remember, just some weeks ago, I had on Buddha Maitreya, who is said to be the actual reincarnation of the Buddha, and he made the assertion that Christ was the reincarnation of the Buddha. So this reincarnation today, born to a Blackfoot father, is the current embodiment of the Buddha and the Christ. Say yes, say no, debate it until you're blue in the face. On one hand, it doesn't matter at all. A man is judged so often and valued by his actions. And his actions are luminous. And if it is true, and it's got to be true somewhere, sometime, somehow, especially because at times of greatest need on this dear planet, an avatar, it said, is sent. And we could use probably a few of them right about now, so that this man I had on as my guest would be both the embodiment of Buddha and Christ, I think think is seriously worth contemplating and enjoying the contemplation that it may well be so. And then what does that mean? It means we have a guide, we have a teacher and an avatar to perhaps inform us and give us some guidance and facilitate our own awakening on a level that, uh, well, perhaps we only dreamed of. So on that note, I want to just thank you all for joining me again here today at the uh, Better World Studio, a Better World TV, a Better World, Better World Radio. And remember that I'm also on Progressive Radio Network again on Monday nights at 9 o'clock, speaking specifically about progressive films documentaries, and many of them are environmental in nature, some of them involve social justice, and any number of subjects that we humans who are seeking to be more and more humane really want to grapple with and get wisened up to, uh, like my dear friend uh, Swami Biondananda says, we need another upwising. <laughs> On that note, if you haven't yet gotten the newsletter and signed up for our free newsletter every week, please do. Please also know we do promotions for those authors and those filmmakers and musicians and artists and politicians and the like who are aligned with our mission and our values, spiritual teachers and the like. And uh, using us for your promotions helps you and us, helps us sustain, and we also accept donations. So anytime, anywhere, please visit abetterworld.tv and uh, contribute anything, even if it's just the amount of a latte. It's fine. We appreciate all. On that note, again, thank you so much for joining us. It's so valuable to us here at A Better World in New York City 
to receive your uh, attention and your feedback at mjr at abetterworld.net. That's mjr at abetterworld.net. Visit our website. Forward this show as a pod to your friends. It's a link. And I look forward to seeing you all next